It sounded like, like a t- a theme sh- theme song for a TV show. Like that's the only goon, <laughs> like, like like some Ninja Turtles spinoff or something. Thursdays at eight seven Central. Goon Squad. <laughs> And welcome back to yet another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where old friends and musicians pick a random album from the 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die list and talk about it, analyze it, break it down, complain about it. This week we've been listening to Elvis Costello and the Attractions Armed Forces, released way back in January of 1979. To get things started, I would love to hear people's initial reactions and then i'll give you some background on the record and at the end of this conversation we're going to vote on whether or not you really need to get into depth and listen to this and understand this record before you die so joining us today we have tom hey how's it going everybody i am tom my initial tweet length review uh castello and the attractions third album is their third best album and it's also their most political album (laughs) hot takes already hot takes already let's kick it over to adam Hey, this is Adam. Aside from Allison, that may have been the only song that I had ever heard by Elvis Costello. I didn't know what to expect. I certainly didn't expect what I heard on this album, but I love it, and I'm glad uh, it was what it was. Excellent, and we'll kick it over to Alan. Hey, this is Alan, and my thoughts after listening to this album are, with bass like this, who the hell needs guitar? Oh, yeah. Yes. I hear you. Yes. I hear you. I am fist pumping right now. Totally. Just a base, a clinic all around. I agree. Well, so let me just start by saying I was familiar with this record, but not all the nuances and the the political nature of it. It is a concept record about fascism. So my, and I learned that in over the last week, more or less, and dug into that and learned to appreciate it more. But my tweet length review is being fairly familiar with, especially the early Elvis Costello catalog. And, and really liking it. The Attractions are such a kicking band. And for a band led by a guitar player, I totally agree. That's one of my biggest, that's one of the biggest surprises, I think, is how little guitar is on there. Elvis gets it's out of the way. It's a rock album, right, with very little guitar. And lets the three Attractions play, and man, I think they're all great players. So to me, this is the Attractions branching out. This is actually the second record with the Attractions, and it's them branching out and really using the studio more as an instrument, taking more production chances, taking more arrangement chances. The record that directly preceded this, I would maybe agree with Tom, might be my my all-time favorite, but it's much more of a straight-ahead rock record. The band really kicks on that one, and it's it's angry, it's fast, it's like it's almost more like punk music in a way. This one, and that was a band that had just gotten together, and you could feel a lot of that new band energy on that one. This one is a band coming off the road from touring on that previous album, which is called This Year's Model, for 12 months of constant touring, coming, having written all these songs basically on the road during that time, coming back into the studio and really starting to use the studio more as, as a tool, I think. So uh, very exciting. I love this record. Uh, I'm very excited to get into it. As I mentioned, and, and I think this is really has to frame everything we talk about with this one, it is a concept record. It's about fascism, which was on the rise at this moment in the UK. 
and feels kind of relevant to what's going on in the U.S. now, maybe. A couple no, things to reference there, here. Rob? <laughs> <laughs> feels, still, feels, still feels pertinent, right? I am afraid of being drafted into the goon squad, I have to say. <laughs> you mean the goon squad? <laughs> it's, it's sometimes hard to come up with some of this context, but it really was a time when there were the National Front, which was a, a right-wing movement in Britain, was gaining a lot of steam. Um, I read this in a recent article by The Atlantic that was celebrating the 40th anniversary, released this record, but it talked about how in August of 1977, 500 National Front members gathered for a march, and they basically clashed with counter-protesters. The ensuing riot was called the Battle of Lewisham. It left 111 people injured, half of them police officers. Over 200 people were arrested. And this was a time where neo-fascism, this is from the Atlantic article, even attracted some prominent rock musicians. I am going somewhere with this. For instance, our favorite, at a 1976 concert in Birmingham, Eric Clapton chanted racist slogans. <laughs> God damn it. No. And praised Enoch Powell, a notorious Tory member of parliament who warned of rivers of blood if immigration was not curtailed. Clapton said on stage, apparently more than one time, keep Britain white. And then he says, oh he follows God. it up with, I used to be into dope. Now I'm into racism. It's much heavier, man. Jesus. No, that's an onion article. Yeah, nope, be honest. You just article. got that. <laughs> Eric Clapton, gigantic piece of shit. Yeah. Wow. But flash forward to all Clapton's recent anti vax protests right. and just. Uh, okay, this is. Yeah, this he's is been sowing those seeds for decades, he's, apparently. He's a bastion of, of idiocy. But it was, on, it was on people's minds. And the other historical event that I think brings context to this is the Troubles of Northern Ireland. Right, they raged right. for something like 30 years, so we were well into them at this point. But this was an, a time when there was basically a civil war in Northern Ireland uh, between the Catholics and the Protestants, effectively. And Elvis Costello is an Irish descendant of Irish Catholic immigrants and has always felt identified strongly as being Irish, but even though he was born in England. So he feels very close to kind of that conflict. And that is going to be referenced a bunch of times, the whole kind of England-Ireland conflict and specifically the Troubles, which Protestant England and predominantly Catholic non-Northern Ireland are a part of. This is the time when lots of civilians are being killed, the time of the IRA and car bombs, and a lot of people, non-combatants, uh, being hurt by this. Time. Elvis so Costello's a, dad was an Ulster Catholic, too, right? He was like a Northern Ireland Catholic. So it's not like he was like, oh, I'm in... You know, I'm in uh, Dublin, and I'm I have solidarity with the people in Northern Ireland. No, they were he was there in Ulster, which was occupied. Exactly, exactly. So this is a really it's definitely I, well, I believe it's Elvis Costello's most political album. Elvis Costello is one of these guys. I'll just say right off the bat, I'm a, I've been a fan of his for a long time, but he has a really, really long ranging catalog. He's been writing songs and producing albums with consistency for something like 45 years at this point. So I have definitely not listened to all of it. I did recently read his memoir. And one of the things I, I got from that, and you know, just kind of frame who he is as a musician, as a person, and really how he defines himself. He is a songwriter 100% of the time. And he's someone who continued to write songs, loves the craft of songs, collaborates with other songwriters throughout his career. He's cut records with Alan Toussaint, with Burt Bacharach and, and written songs with them as well for those records. He's collaborated with Paul McCartney on songwriting, things like that. 
And one of the things I think is he is definitely a working class British, Irish immigrant, British guy, but his father was also a musician who was a trumpet player in a big band, a touring big band and very working class musician style, meaning he made a living from it, but he certainly wasn't famous. And Elvis said that basically this is where he got the idea that to be good at something like music, you just have to apply the work a day attitude to it. You just have to put in the hours with consistency. That plus one nice thing about his upbringing was that his dad would always have the latest 45s of all the pop songs because he had to bring them home and, li and listen to them so he could learn them because then the big band was going to do right. versions of them. And then okay. Elvis would get the hand-me-down. So he always had access to the, the pop records of the time. That makes a lot of sense because I feel like whenever I think of Elvis Costello, and I'm not as steeped in it, uh, certainly as you are, Rob, although I'll credit you yet again as being the one who probably introduced his catalog to me back in, in, in our college days. But I've always thought of him as someone who has like cracked the code on songwriting. And that makes it seem more mysterious than it probably really is. But I think to your point, he just figured out how to do it and, and you know, came with a lot of uh, practice and probably had a whole 10,000 hours shit. But yeah. Um, one thing I, was, I will say about about his songwriting particularly is that um, I, I also like I know I came in sounded like it was a hot take by saying that this is like his third best album, but. I will preface this by saying that like this year's model and my aim is true are amazing albums that I'd love. I, I like, I listened to this year's model so much again, just because the attractions are ripping on that album constantly. But like, this is a really good album. I do think though, that there is a little bit of, I don't know, like utilitarian songwriting maybe to his approach. It's almost like, I wouldn't necessarily say he writes songs like Cormac McCarthy writes books, but like I could see a little bit of that sort of parallel. Whereas like it, he's got the formula, he's just plugging in different. No, no, uh, I wouldn't necessarily or, say that. I would say that there are certain songs that you listen to and it sounds like it was like a super music first endeavor where they're like i'm like i'm putting this music first like i write all of the music and then i put a melody and i put words on top of it and i get the opposite sense with elvis costello where he's like i have a melody and maybe words that i want to get out there and i put the music behind it and that's okay. I, that's the sense that i get from his writing it's interesting tom i think when i wouldn't have put it the way you did i love that cormac mccarthy comparison i think that's kind of unique one of the things that i kind of wrote down in my notes was these are all really well composed songs, but only with the exception of one, none of them were really like catchy and not that that makes the mark of a good song, but I don't know if that's what you're alluding to either where I came away. Like there's, as you're listening to it, you realize you're listening to something really great, but it's not that earworm that you might expect from someone who's like as accomplished as a songwriter. Yeah. It's, yeah, that's I know I, I agree with that. It's very words first. And he comes in that songwriting tradition of a guy like a Bob Dylan, who he admires greatly, certainly, who and then tries to compose around that compose movement. And I think what you see in these songs is a lot of complex chord movement and voice leading in some cases. And I should say he doesn't just play the guitar. He also plays piano, but he's not playing piano on the record. There's a piano player in the attractions. I'm sure he composed some of the songs on the piano, though. And he likes complexity. He likes songcraft to its own end. He tries little song experiments here that I think we'll see when we talk about it. For instance, he said he was really excited when he wrote Big Boys because he got really close to writing a one chord song. <laughs> so 
I really want to get to, the, to some of the music quickly because Alan, you alluded to the fact of you know him not having a ton of catchy songs, and you're right because he's not a very well known quantity in the at least not in the American musical catalog. I'd be kind of surprised if people knew many of his tunes, uh, other than Adam mentioned Allison, which was on his first record. Absolutely great song. And Elvis Costello is that kind of person who, because not only has he been writing songs and producing records for this long, a lot of times with very similar musicians, he's still playing right now with that keyboard player and that drummer. Him and the bass player had a falling out in the 90s, I think. He was too good. He was too good to be a side man. (laughs) However, he every record, at least in these, in these early periods, which is the period I'm really familiar with, you get something a little different. That very first Elvis Costello record has a little country twang to it. I mean, it's always got some hallmarks of Elvis, but it's got, it's got a little more country stylings, maybe. There's that slow song of Allison that it doesn't really fit quite anywhere else. There's maybe even a little of that reggae influence on something like Watching the Detectives. The aforementioned This Year's Model, just his nonstop energy coming from a really kicking band, more let's say a little more traditional punk, although without all the distortion or anything like that. And then with this one, you get this pop smorgasbord is what I think we have going on here of a lot of different kinds of production, a lot of different kinds of songs. And I remember having listened to those first two records first in my youth and then getting to this one, just being blown away by how many ideas this was putting in my head on a production level, just going, Oh, these, that's a really interesting thing to do. Oh, that's a weird choice. So you mean the drunken carnival music was uh, unexpected? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Got to buy myself a klezmer. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned, you know, why, uh, you know, he doesn't have a ton of catchy songs. That's one of the reasons why he wasn't able to make the charts in the U.S. I'd love to dive right into this. One little more piece of background just to segue in, which is when this was released, January 5th, 1979, the song that was topping those British charts was YMCA by the Village People. This was deep into the era of disco. And I find that to be a perfect segue into the first song I want to play. I'm sure the catchy song that Alan was alluding to, Oliver's Army. start by saying that this is basically an ABBA song in disguise. (laughs) That piano is straight ABBA and I love it. A little bit of context before we dive into the the sort of the the controversial nature of this, I I think needs to be covered. Oliver refers to Oliver Cromwell. So we're already deep in history here. Oliver Cromwell led the brutal British conquest of Ireland in the mid 17th century and is still a fiercely hated figure today in Ireland. So he's definitely calling to mind this whole English-Irish conflict. And in general, right, the song, I think, is about imperialist conflicts around the world. And maybe even, I think he acknowledges kind of in the first line of the song that he's just drunkenly talking about them, not doing a deep political dive on them. But 
basically joking about how the army tries to recruit people and says it's a great career and in fact you know invades other people's countries i also love it because it's one of the only pop songs that i it's the only pop song i can think of that mentions palestine (laughs) (laughs) that's fair yeah yeah, certainly I, d- does a better job of approaching that region than uh, uh, the Bee Gees Israel does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, significantly better. Significantly better. Yeah, I this I thought that. So first of all, I think, and I don't want this to come off as like hyperbole, but I think this is like one of the best rock songs of all time. Like, you know, I don't know if I'm I'm stretching it here, but like, it's just a great song. The I never really paid much attention to the lyrics. So kind of the way I came into this album was, um, so my wife Courtney actually bought this at like a local record store. Cause you know, we've listened to a little bit of Elvis Costello. And so she brought it home and like, we had a stretch where we were listening to this like all the time at dinner. And that song always struck me as like happy go lucky and real <laughs> upbeat and like, dun, dun, dun. and then when you like dive into the lyrics, you're like, fuck, this is actually like a kind of dark, like grim song. So that, that contrast is really uh, is interesting. Yeah, I mean the, the the hook is like I would rather be anywhere else but here today. It's like you know, and sung so happily, yeah. as well, which is awesome. Definitely purposeful, right? That right, juxtaposition. Yeah. Yep. And so, so again, this is a primarily a reference to the kind of sending English, poor English uh, kids to the Northern Ireland troubles uh, to fight. Uh, against the Catholics or or possibly pulling uh, Catholics out of the line and, and sending them to other places in the world. And, you know, I'll just save us the trouble. Let's just play the most controversial lyric in the song. There was a check on Charlotte He didn't crack a smile But it's no laughing part When you've been on the murder mile Only takes one itch to trigger One more What do you guys think about this? I always had a problem with this line, particularly. I listen, I know what he's going for. I know he's trying to be provocative. It feels a little tasteless to me. It feels bad, in my opinion. Part of that, though, is colored by the fact that there was that pretty famous incident with Elvis Costello that happened in 1979 where he made like he got into like a drunken fight with the members of like the Stephen Stills band in a bar. And it led to a I thought a you were going to say the Steven Seagal band for a second. No, which would have been great. Um, <laughs> he would have kicked everyone's ass with his fake ninja skills. I don't know. I think Sorry, I'd take Tom. Elvis Costello over Steven Seagal in an actual yeah, you're fight. Right. But um, no, so apparently, like, you know, at some point he was, he was like the upstart and he was trying to needle these guys and he was getting drunk and at... Apparently, at some point, he's, he starts yelling about how James Brown is a, quote, jive-arsed N-word, and Ray Charles is a blind, ignorant N-word. And, like, you know, the fact that he also kind of famously didn't apologize for it until, like, 2013, when he was being interviewed <laughs> by Questlove, is a little bit, like, uh, it gives me an all-lives-matter feel. Where he's like, well, I was an Irishman in, in England, and so clearly I had it just as bad as black people do. And you're like, yeah, there's <laughs> a slavery right. thing, I think, there. I, you know, I'll say some little controversy in, in that, like, is it is it is there a world where at that time it was it was not as bad to express 
that sort of sentiment. And, or at least if I bring it back to the song itself, right. I mean, that's, that was a reference to like Northern Irish, like a, a derogatory term. Am I like, that was an in-use right? derogatory term for Irish Catholics. Specifically. I am not saying, I'm not denying that. It just feels tasteless for me to oh, use it based upon some of the other things that I know, well, aside from the feels, context of the song. It certainly yes. feels tasteless now. I don't think anyone yes. would argue yeah. with that, right? It has not aged well, certainly. Yeah. But I do think I understand why, what Tom said about it being colored by this incident. I think we should get a little uh, deeper into that incident if we can, as best we can. But I do think they're se- they are separate events. I know two points theoretically make a line, but I'm just not sure that's the whole story here. I definitely was not aware of that context or that that was associated with with him. Um, so that, I mean, that does that affects things certainly. Okay, so his this his take on it, or you know what I kind of read about it in a variety of places was it was more or less as Tom described. He was he was drunk, and he's always been a provocateur. And especially when he was young, he was he was drugged out and alcoholed out and he was trying to start shit. Basically, he wanted to get punched and he did get punched. In fact, he got his shoulder dislocated by one of the backup singers in Steven Stills band. (laughs) Not to mention that as the story spread, it basically killed his, you know, nascent career for a bit. And he kind of went into seclusion for a few years and obviously came back. I'm not saying whatever. I'm not really commenting on that. He now sees it as something that that really he needed to set his dumbass straight. I guess that's what I want to say, and I, I, that's how I've heard him talk about it. So whether or not he is an asshole or ha- was a racist back then or is one now, I really I don't know the answer. But I I have to plead that it's not worth throwing out his entire catalog over this. That's my premise. Oh no, I still like the song. I just wish he'd used a different way to express what he was trying to get across. Yeah, same, same, I mean, same. there's no yeah. doubt that if he had the opportunity to have a redo on that, he would take it. But, you know, I, I do think when you're talking about like 40 something years ago, people evolve. And, and I think I some of it, I don't know, again, not a justification, but some of it may have been there's some other lines on this record where he's really purposely trying to push buttons and saying it with a tongue in cheek or a sarcastic oh, manner of totally. the, through the mouth of a fascist or of a racist or of uneducated people. Right. And I think he likes the idea that people misunderstand him and he does not want to comment on it. I've, I've heard him kind of echo that many times. He's not there to explain his songs. You either it's art, you get it or you don't. He's, he has that quote famously attributed to him that, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. It's pointless. How would he feel about talking about music? <laughs> you should ask him. Similarly pointless. I think the, the, the lyrics in the song are quite clever, though. I do actually very much, and that, again, I, I, I'm not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I like the lyrics in the song. I think they're super clever. I love the little sly wink of like uh, call careers information. Have you got yourself an occupation? It's like, oh, the double meaning there. Do you want to be a part of an occupation? And do you have a job? Like, it's great. It's delightful. I like it. Very, I agree. Very clever. And on a musical note, I noticed that the song is in A major, but he manages throughout the course of the song to hit every chord in A major. And pretty, he gets through six of them in the first verse, by the way. And then you're waiting for that G sharp minor, that seven chord to come in and it comes in on the Hong Kong is up for grabs 
like bridge section. Oh, and so, it's been, it feels like a key change. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was a key change. Got it. Yeah. Cause I, I had a note here. Uh, he, yeah. He mentions during the bridge, right. We could be in Palestine, uh, that it something happened there. So, oh, that's good to know. All right. Something's happening. Hong Kong is up for grabs. London is full of apps. We could be in Palestine. Overrun by a Chinese line with the bias from the Mersey and the Thames and the Tide. And again, talk about just the goddamn masterful bass work going on. That like bass descend over the chorus is so simple, but it's it's so like wraps around to that you know because the melody lands on that today, and it's like back on it starts on a B, descends down, and then like when it lands on the last word, it's back on that B again. And that bass descend through there, it just it frames the melody so nicely. And it reminded really, me of that that um friend of the devil lick where i think it's just a sort of a descending major scale sort of but it, yeah the way it's oriented it just works really nicely and doesn't seem obvious i agree Br- brilliantly constructed so wasn't able to crack the u.s charts with any significance partly because of this controversy over the stephen stills incident and perhaps just the the lyrics we talked about being too controversial but here's another little tidbit for you they actually filmed a proper video for this in 1979, and it air, it was one of the videos that aired on MTV's first broadcast day. Oh, all right. Oh, shit. Wow. So I am curious about that. Did they censor the song? Because I know that the BBC famously chose not to censor this song, like all the way up until like 2018 or something like that. They started censoring it like just within the last couple of years. But they were like purposefully like, no, we know, and we're leaving it in there because we feel like it serves a larger purpose. Um, so I'm wondering if MTV censored it or not. That's a great question. I did not see a note on that. Of course, the, when I watched the video on YouTube, it was not censored, but I doubt yeah. it, I guess. Yeah, they probably didn't have that censored yeah, button BBC technology BBC in the late 70s and 80s, we're talking, that's like, you know, the what were the, the British uh, I, Claudius, which was just chock full of nudity, and I'm pretty sure just aired at like 6 o'clock on Sunday evenings. Well, kids are drinking at like <laughs> in 15 England. over there. So, you But know, it's right. also like Margaret Thatcher became the prime minister in uh, 79, and she was very famously like conservative iron lady, then, you know, I'm sure hated by Costello. Oh, yeah. Elvis doesn't like her either, for yeah. sure. <laughs> we, should, we should probably just, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Elvis... Costello is not his birth name, but no. and that his birth name is awesome too. So I'm kind of surprised he didn't roll with this one. It's Declan McManus. Oh god, that's pretty bad. You cannot get more Irish than that. Yeah, name. I was gonna say a little <laughs> ethnic for my taste, but <laughs> Thor McKickass. What? Yeah. Oh man, I also you know, does he know Angus word. McLeod from North Kilt Town <laughs> by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna say, seeing as we're like name dropping, you know names here like i i feel like we would be remiss to not specifically call out the bass player and the drummer in the attractions because they are by far the stars of this album they are so I damn agree. good got with bruce thomas and pete thomas who are not related yes bruce thomas bass player pete thomas drummer yeah correct yeah i agree they're both sick and and i love that this is a band that really lets them shine 
I, yeah. I, th- I think the keyboard player is great too. You know, he's not, a, he's maybe not quite as flashy, but I think he plays great accompaniment in a variety of places on this. And they're just a really kicking band, man. They really are. They really do feel like a band. And, you know, Rob, you might know this more than me. I think I saw a glancing reference to this in like looking over stuff for the, for this episode. But when Bruce Thomas and Elvis had a falling out, which I think happened over a period of a few years and then maybe they got back together and then fell out again. I read that it was because the bass player Bruce was sort of feeling himself a little much and maybe getting a little bit too forward in what they were doing. And I, is that, Oh, that's fine. I heard I unclear how these things happen. Right. But what I heard was that Bruce Thomas wrote like a novel, like not quite a memoir, but something that was obviously based on his real life and just talked all this shit on Elvis Costello without naming him directly, but it was obviously about him. And Elvis Costello was like, what the, what the hell, man? Yeah. The lead singer in my like, band, uh, who I will, yeah. will remain nameless. Yeah. We'll call him uh, Ringo Delterio. There we go. There go. <laughs> yeah. But he's still playing with the other two guys in a band called The Imposters, and the only person they, they subbed out was that bass player, and they've been playing this entire time as, as a group. So pretty cool. Although Elvis has obviously cut some records with other people and, and by himself as well. All right, let's 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 keep his trainer rolling. The next song we agreed to to chat about, and I'll, I should say Oliver's Army was the first single, and the second single was Accidents Will Happen, the opening track on the album, which I, we didn't set aside to speak about uh, specifically. But neither of them really charted. He's never had a number one hit in the UK. Just kind of like hitting this note that he's this he's this working man's songwriter who's never. He's obviously had success, but he's never had chart success in the UK or the US, which is kind of interesting. But I want to roll into this song, Big Boys. I am starting to function in the usual way. Everything is so provocative, very, very temporary. I shall walk, I shall walk out of this place. Uh, yeah, I think this this particular song struck me as like peak Elvis Costello. Like this was like I, I felt it was kind of like the epitome of his sound because it had this mix of like super staccato and then kind of long holds that I feel like for some reason just like kind of gets that frantic spastic mod sound almost going to this that I, I really dig it. So this this song I was like, oh, this is like peak. Elvis Costello, why does it have this weird staccato feel during most of the song? I started listening to it and like, there's like almost no cymbals on this song at all. Yeah. No hi-hat. Good call. But like, put some cymbal accents in there, but it's really just drum pounds and it gives you this like, and they are super well mixed. Yeah. Excellent use of stereo on the drums there. Just really, really tasty. Yeah. So I found that to be like a weird treatment like I, I can't think of a lot of other songs because especially you know, Bruce Thomas you think of like that song off of this year's model no action he's just like just on every single symbol he's hitting every single like four beats and this one is so sparse and tight and it gave it this really cool sound it, it almost reminded me of and as I'm thinking about the song I'm referring to the drums sound a little bit similar but I thought it sounded a lot like that song pump it up which is probably another yeah. one of Elvis Costello's more like popular songs. Um, while this might be peak 
Costello, I, I, this song was probably, I don't want to go as far as to say like a low point because I, I don't think this album really had much approximating a low point, but it, it, it was just all right for me. Um, it had some cool harmonies. I, I think the vocal, there was some strategic doubling and, and, um, some, some cool harmonies, but I, I wasn't this one, you know, I could kind of take it or leave it. I may be crazy in this, but there was a San Francisco band called the chop that this definitely gave me chop vibes <laughs> and having two members, potentially one honorary member of that band on this call. Do you guys feel that from an outsider listening in? I could, I got, I just got chop vibes, man. That must be why what I didn't it? like it. I was going to say, how dare you? Rob loves I Elvis probably... Costello, and I wasn't good enough to hit the hi-hat and the drums at the same time. So. Are you comparing yes. Bruce Thomas to John McGrath? Or should so we not drop out. names here? I definitely I definitely like Elvis Costello as a songwriter. I've never heard that or that comparison. That's very complimentary of you, Adam. But yeah, I mean, he was a big influence on me as, as a writer. So that kind of sure. energy yeah, and... Yeah. And, you know, I, I sort of categorize this whole genre of music very broadly as I, I keep saying the word punk. And we talked a little bit, I think, in the Violent Femmes episode about defining the genre of punk a bit more broadly, maybe, than than most people might. This was the early day. Elvis Costello was associated, at least loosely, with that early punk scene where it was kind of an anything goes as long as you weren't playing disco or pop music directly, you were con- you were considered you punk were considered if you were anything punk. but. And it, yeah, it was just more about energy and attitude, and no guitar solos, and no guitar solos exactly. Right. So I think there's I think there's definitely something something to that, and I always saw that we did have guitar solos in the shop. <laughs> there's some of that energy that we took into our bands. At least you can't be in a band without with Phil without guitar solos. <laughs> <laughs> this song also introduced what I what I'm calling the Elvis Costello vocal chameleon, and oh. this is not it. This is not in a a critique of his vocal stylings. I like his voice, but he has like four distinct sounds yep. that I almost at at one point thought that there was a different singer fronting certain songs. Am, am I crazy on that? Or are you guys getting that vibe as well? No, I agree. And he even uses, I think he does a lot of using this, these like dueling vocal takes to almost exacerbate that, that feeling. So here's, here's one thing that I was thinking about it, it throughout this album. And I started thinking about it on this song particularly is that it's all Costello on Costello for the harmony, right? It's like all the harmonies. It's like, I think all the voices are his voice, right? Every single so. backup voice yep. is his voice. And I was contrasting it with like uh, Mary Jane's Last Dance, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Tom Petty on Tom Petty Harmony, where it just sounds like this weird, like super homogenous but spread over the cor- over a chord voice. And Elvis Costello, his backups, even though it's his voice, they sound so distinct and they sound so separate from his right. main vocal yeah. line that it you're like how is that not two different people it's just him but it still sounds so separated in a way that I, that i i feel like the you on you on you harmonies can get a little um synthetic sounding and a corny and yeah they can sound corny yeah. at times too yeah well I, I i feel like tom petty definitely learned that from jeff lynn of ELO and who produced his sure. first solo record right and you know who's known for that too like those yellow records are just Jeff Lynn 75 times on top of himself. <laughs> it can sound great and beautiful and sort of otherworldly, right? But in this case, I have to believe 
that this was a very conscious choice by Elvis because to Adam's point, not only does he have different vocal kind of approaches, but then they very purposely treat different vocal parts of the songs with like a different mix or a different effect. Like he's trying to give a lot of that weird variety. And like I said, the two vocal takes in a lot of cases, he, he does one vocal take that kind of overlaps with another one at a time when you don't necessarily need it to be that it's not for a held note necessarily. You know what I mean? It's not for a, a reason you, you might think it's more just a, a style choice. Yeah. I never thought about that as far as him doing all the vocals himself, because when I think about his vocals, I think one, you know, one thing I don't think he is that he excels at is sort of singing, you know, quite frankly, like he's got a really like nasally distinct voice, but he obviously is architecting these really nice arrangements. So clearly he's, he's a skilled, you know, vocal stylist, but I think his sort of like standard issue voice is, is not what I would consider like somebody who's like a quote unquote great singer. And for the vocal snob here, I'm trying to determine why it is that A, it doesn't bother me, and B, I actually like it. And I think it could be the the songs, right? Like they almost make up. If you have a kind of whiny, nasally voice and you're singing one note over one chord or something, that's that's when I feel like I, I have a tendency to get annoyed with it. But these songs go everywhere and they're so varied and the styles are different. And it's just, yeah, it, I'm I dig it. I feel like he's got a little bit of that, and I know you can tell from the his first album, the album cover. He's got he's he's got a Buddy Holly thing going on in that sort of like that weird kind of hiccupy kind of uh, 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 type of vocal sure. approach yeah. sometimes. But that's not all. Mm-hmm. That's not always. Sometimes he has the Elvis approach, like uh, where he's trying to sing a little bit lower. So I think maybe part of it is that like very famously, I'm not a fan of the Smiths. I'm not a fan of Morrissey's voice. Maybe part of that is like you listen to an entire album and Morrissey sounds like Morrissey the entire time. And like Elvis Costello sounds like Elvis Costello, but Elvis Costello has four sounds or five sounds. And so, you know, you get, if you're going to get sick of it, he switches it up before that happens. I think he's trying to serve the song. That's, you know, because it really is about the songs with him. And on this record in particular, I think he's trying to push forward. I agree he's got some, some Buddy Holly in him, but also just he's trying to push forward some kind of attitude or sarcasm through his delivery. It comes across I kind of in all the songs, but certainly in a song like Peace, Love, What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding. You know, this song is partially about women, but it's also about wanting to join the army and be a be a big man. And, you know, he, he has to kind of put that snarl in there to make it clear that he's joking a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's also something that's uh you know, I think we all disagreed on back on the uh, Donald Fagan episode. You all disagreed with me where I was like, his delivery is so like non-sneering, but like his vocal content is sneering. But like, uh, you know, lyrical content sneering, but the delivery was beautiful and non-sneering. But like, you definitely get a sneer in the inflection of, of Elvis Costello's voice. Definitely. Fair enough. All right. Let's move right along to the next song on the list. Party Girl. Let's spin a couple seconds of that.
I'll kick it to the group. Adam, thoughts? Holy shit, what a great friggin' song. So this is my this is my favorite song on the album. I there's a ton of great stuff about it. I think I know the why it's bass. your favorite song. Why is that? It's because Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's <laughs> hang on, wait. Let me see. I want to see if 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 Tom has nailed what I'm going to say in a second. Uh the bass is loud, it's forward, it's really well written. Great piano breakdown. Uh, it is not easy to do that kind of slammy, very fast, hard chords and still maintain the structure of the melody and stay within the chords. But the thing I love at the end is you never give me your money. Exactly. Is, the, <laughs> is that chord pattern. And I feel, so I read a an interview with Garth Brooks back in the day, I guess first or second album, and he got together with the songwriters and said, we need like an end of the night encore song. Let's write a song that's just going to get people crazy. And he wrote this song called Ain't Going Down Till the Sun Comes Up. And, and, you know, it's a great rock song, great end of the night song. I feel like Elvis Costello sat down and was like, I need to transition into a Beatles song at some point in the live show. <laughs> we need <laughs> You Never Give Me Your Money. We'll play it and then we'll play it out and we'll all start going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All good children. We did, sorry, I neglected to mention he's from Liverpool, so he's a huge Beatles ah, fan his entire okay. life. Okay, right? that's yeah. awesome. Yes, it's it's such a powerful chord. Yeah, that's got like subliminal catnip to you, Adam. That you're just like, oh, I, oh, oh it's totally just playing in the background. It's like, oh, reminds but me of I was childhood. thinking that's like uh, uh, so. Abbey Road probably came out ten years ish prior to him writing this song, and I'm thinking like currently if like. I don't know. I went back and grabbed a Muse song <laughs> from 2012 and used like a really well-defined portion of that song as the ending for my song. It was just a fun little uh, mental effort there. Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the outro really stands out. I think it's a very well-composed song. Lots of drama and movement within a fairly straightforward tune. Awesome bass. Just some of the best. Yes. On the this. bass is so damn good. Dude, there's little bass drops. The like, I one of the notes I had was that I, I felt like this song could stand alone if you stripped everything out. That if it was just straight up bass, it, it, in a way that you know this might sound like a crass comparison, but when we listen to Violent Femmes, I thought that there was a bass like anchor in a way that you just don't have in a lot of other songs. But yeah, one one thing that made it a little tough for me with this song, I mean, I, I agree with everything. It's it's a phenomenal song. Adam, when you said on our text thread that this sounded like Phil, I couldn't unhear that. <laughs> Did I, the in the first five words or whatever it is, it it is Phil as far as I'm concerned. For those of you listening on the podcast, Phil is another member on our little group here that is is usually week to week on the show, and his singing voice uh, sounds exactly like Elvis Costello in the first five. Uh, five words of this song. And since we, we threw the, the chop some love, go check out Phil's band Mega and you can hear his voice. What's the album? Something? The Valley, Valley Spirit, of the Spirit. Never Dies. There you go. 
Go listen to that as well, and you can hear uh, some some fake uh, Elvis Costello there. <laughs> and, and some bass by Alan. And some bass by Alan. Yeah. Alan. Yes, no offense, Alan. Not quite as hot as the bass on this song, but like almost nothing is. The bass on this song is so hot. It's so good. Yeah, I'm willing to concede that at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Just like the way that the bass during the verse is kind of wandery and gets really high, and like it gives the song this kind of like, you know, you sort of get a little looser and then it pulls it really far back in and it gets these really like nice tight rudy hits over the the chorus it's so great it's really just like the dynamics is are completely driven by the bass this title always makes me always reminds me of this story of hanging out with a friend who grew up in mainland china and him commenting on someone we both knew another chinese person saying oh you know she's she's kind of a party girl and all the Americans were like, oh, okay, that sounds weird. And then realizing that he meant something very different within the People's <laughs> oh. Republic of China. <laughs> yeah. She's like, so she like does a lot of cocaine? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> so it doesn't seem to fit, but yeah. okay. <laughs> no, he meant something totally different. Okay, let's keep it rolling here. Oh, Real Adam, quick. please, yeah. One last thing, just with the vocal chameleon. Listen to the end of this song. He sounds exactly like Lenny Kravitz. When Lenny Kravitz layers those harmonies at the end of one of his songs, Elvis Costello sounds just like Lenny Kravitz at the end of this one. So more more vocal gymnastics there. Awesome. I'm glad we all agree, guys. It's <laughs> 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 an easy call. I was getting a little worried. <clears throat> okay, let's move on to first song on side two of the LP, Goon Squad. So Adam, you sent a uh, a message around earlier of like, did he buy this off of Iron Maiden? Um, and <laughs> it's totally a Maiden song with no guitar. It reminded me of like I listened to for, you know Rob and I worked together, and I was like waiting to hop into a meeting with Rob, and I was killing some time, and I watched this YouTube video. This guy's like playing metal songs on a guitar with no distortion. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is basically like metal without distortion. Yes. I also don't really like this song, but uh, I did think it was kind of like, you know, metally without distortion. And the reason I don't like this song is I can't get over the hard pan left goon squad that's pretty dark that, yeah, so that was lame. rough it's really yeah. bad it sounded like, like a, t- a, t- a theme sh- theme song for a tv show like that's the only <laughs> like goon like you know, like some ninja turtles spin-off or something. thursdays at 8 7 get... central goon squad <laughs> i could not get that no, out of my no, head no, no, the no. entire song i think i i like some of the musical parts of it it's definitely the heaviest song and it stands out a bit so I don't, I definitely don't hate it. Like, but 
particularly when they get to the they've come to look you over and they're giving you the I, I, I does like that record skip thing. I love what the band does there. I think I think, again, it just feels like well composed. And if I have a, a beef about the metal comparison, it's just that it, it often feels really samey. And I just think this really goes out of its way to add add these textures in there. Right. So. But yeah, I agree. The spoken line the goon squad thing is 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 dorky. They do another bass breakdown, which I think gets rings a lot out of only three chords or whatever, you know, reasonably. But I also, I have to admit, I'm partially influenced by the fact that I like the expression Goon Squad. I think it's a funny expression. <laughs> okay. I think, you know, originally it meant like Goon meaning a less than intelligent person, but it, it specifically used to refer to like mercenaries who were employed in an either pro-union or anti-union capacity to like go in and bust heads. Maybe it refers to the fourth line of a hockey team, you know, where it's all goons yeah, that yeah. go in and just fight the other goons. Famous hockey fan, Elvis Costello, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> Tampa Bay Irish fan, fan, I really think. Love, yeah. uh, well, you know, if you take a look at that Oliver's Army video, I didn't know how screwed up his teeth were, man. So he might have taken a puck to the face. <laughs> the big book of British smiles going on over there. Yeah. <laughs> Why must you turn this office into a house of lies? <laughs> Wait, can we talk about? So I I don't follow the lyrics all that much in, in in these songs. I mean, for for Elvis Costello, I do, but like in general, I'm not like a lyrics guy. The line "You'll never make me a lampshade or turn me into a lampshade." I was like, what the fuck is that? So I looked it up, and did you do you guys know the context behind that? Is that what a is that is Holocaust that a World stuff? War Two Nazi yeah. reference? Well, yeah, oh. it's like I guess Ooh. making lampshades out of people's skin i yeah. as soon as i saw that i was like ah that got me like that just that hit me yeah, hard that's rough ed gain did it first i'm just saying <laughs> i think it yeah it's i don't know how yeah and there's nothing to say yeah it's intense it was intense line <laughs> but i think it speaks to like some of the 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 seriousness of the, of the subject matter that he's kind of going for like i think well, yeah. what struck me this week was how cons- I didn't I didn't realize this before this week was how consistently he is on the same theme of of fascists and Nazis and referencing these these movements that constri- conscript or convince young impressionable poor usually men to get involved and build an identity and then who knows kind of what happens there you're wrapped up in this movement you know I don't know it's it's it is kind of like a scary ominous feeling. I was really glad we've moved beyond that as a society. Yeah, that's not totally. what happen anymore. If I picking on the the desperate and uh, impressionable for the army and other fascistic tendencies. <laughs> yeah, thank thank God he was the ice cube of his day, writing stuff that is still relevant to this day. <laughs> there you go. Hey, bass players, did he use a pick in this song? Because I made a note that the badass breakdown where the vocals were panned hard right and the bass, I think, was left and it was just the drums, bass, and vocals. That was a standout moment. While this song is not necessarily a standout song, that was a standout moment of badassness on this album. As far as the pick thing, I'd have to look, I'd have to listen to that part again. My understanding is that he does a lot of this finger style and that, like, occasionally he brings the pick out. But yeah, I think he's more uh, organic. Let's just drop that in so we know what we're talking about there. Tom, you have an opinion? 
Yeah, I couldn't tell you if that's pick or not. My assumption is it's not because he is a very finger style player right. generally. And, uh, you know, I, I think you get a little bit more tackiness with a pick, you know, like a uh, tack piano sound as opposed to the felt tip yeah. piano sound. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be my guess, too. Yeah, it didn't, didn't feel like a pick to me, nor that the part necessarily called for it wasn't that fast. But, yeah, I, I like sure, that dropout sure. a lot. Look, stop trying to start another pick fight, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I'm trying to sell the sizzle, man. You know, this controversy Look, we don't need to sells, homie. drama here. Listen, I... Me and you Tom know, hate I, each other enough. You don't have to, like, stoke right. the, <laughs> the fires here. Alan, I'm surprised you haven't made fun of me for uh, the fact that I was just in a recording studio, like, a week ago, and I, I had to resort to using a pick for a part. You know, it's just... I just Everyone comes around on their own terms. You know? It's, <laughs> I texted you guys and immediately Tom came out, you know, when he was done, the party came out and he's like, fuck you. <laughs> no, cause I'm sitting there recording this part and it's a really hard, it's, it's like a 15 minute song or something like that. So like, oh we're, I'm trying to get the end of this part, which is like really difficult and it's like taxing and I see my phone and it's just like laying there and I can't see what it says. And I'm like, I bet you Rob's fucking texting about me using the pick. That son of a bitch. It was on TMZ immediately. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, irresistible irresistible okay let's let's keep it rolling here we want to talk about two more songs the next one up is sunday's best interesting thing about this which alan even wrote on the text string earlier today this got left off of the original u.s release the thinking was that it was too darn british made too many references to what was going on in britain and also was a goofy music hall oompa song right. that maybe americans <laughs> wouldn't like so instead they replaced it with the last song we're going to talk about which is what's so funny about peace love and understanding which was not on the original uk release and was elvis costello didn't intend for that to be on the record initially but it ended up being one of his big songs it's a well we'll get to that song momentarily but let's talk about let's talk about sunday's best which i believe attempts to highlight the racism in england and has through this goofy waltz beat general if this album has a has a challenge for me it's that it it does kind of peter out as the runtime continues in terms of the song strength and the production strength i don't think any of these songs are necessarily bad but again this is one of these songs that we've talked about on the podcast before that harkens back to this music hall thing this english tradition that's baked into all english people's understanding that's this (laughs) pre-jazz club post classical music being the only game in town where you went to a music hall and drank beer and people stood in the middle of the room and kind of stamped their feet and sang songs. Any thoughts on this song? 
Yeah, I... So this is a weird reference, but the only thing I could think of was that song Esther by Fish. You know what I'm talking about? The do 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 but, but more credible, a little bit better. Do we know what you're talking about? <laughs> Adam, luckily, does not. Um, but yeah, I assumed, Rob, when you made the comment about this being you know, withheld from the U S audience after listening to it. I was like, are you sure it wasn't? Cause they thought this would be weird as shit. Just the, <laughs> they thought that the song sucked and that's why they're like, <laughs> yeah, like I'm, just- I, I'm not going to shit on the song. Like I, it's, it, I, I'm okay. Obviously like with branching out and doing something different than the rest of the album. Like I don't have a problem with that. I, it, it was just, it, it felt like a little too much of a joke, like the kind of circus music, but I think they still found a way to make it sound credible. Like, I don't think this was some, was like a throwaway you know song but i not something i would play a ton and yet but it's what i it's a low point for me too but it's still kind of scathing through the lyrics that's what i pulled out of it the the opening line is times are tough for english babies send the army and the navy beat up strangers who talk funny take their greasy foreign money and it continues in that vein for the entire time it's going to send them to johannesburg essentially right to do the more dirty work of the crown and whatnot yeah it's a heavy tune this is the what they got the line. Listen to the decent people, though you treat them just like sheep. Put them all in boots and khakis. Blame it all upon the darkies. Like he's yeah. he's, he's going in there. He does yeah, not shy he's away. Like, Again, he's not shy away. Very much like Ice Cube. You know, <laughs> the parallels yeah, abound. They should get uh, together. Separated. I, I this this did seem to me like it felt like a Rain Dogs rejected B side or something like that. Like I I, I could have seen it was slightly different. More acoustic. I don't treatment. think they rejected anything in that <laughs> session. <laughs> That's possible. And I also thought that like his his vocal style did not work on this particular track. I thought it worked very well. Again, on totally different. Totally different. It's a totally different sound. Didn't work. Right? Yeah, I just didn't think it worked very well. I'm the odd man out that I actually liked this tune. I think it's at the the umpa nature, the annoyingness. But when he hits on Sunday's best, that chord progression that walks down on Sunday's best. That felt like a nice little reward every time it came around in the midst of what is otherwise an annoying song. So I don't know if that was deliberate. Like I'm going to annoy the shit out of you and then give you a little piece of candy three times throughout the song. But I, I appreciated that, uh, that resolution that, that felt like felt nice. I think it's all relative, right? This is just a low point on the album for me. And the songs peter out a little bit as the album goes on deeper into side two. I think side one's much more powerful, but it's relatively speaking. This is still at a higher level of songwriting and production and interest to me generally than a lot of other stuff out there. So, you know, as uh, Les Claypool famously said, they can't all be zingers. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Well, let's move on and talk about a zinger, a a surprise zinger, which was the song What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. Yet another vocal style of Elvis on display here. So you might have heard this one and not even know it was this guy we're talking about. Let's spin it. Don't worry about this 
actually haven't touched at all yet on the producer of this record, a guy called Nick Lowe, who is also the songwriter uh, on this one. So this is a cover of a previously released Nick Lowe song. He's a longtime friend of Elvis Costello and produced a bunch of his records. And he's probably most known to our listeners as the guy that released the song Cruel to Be Kind, which was a hit in the early 80s, I believe, which is actually a pretty cool song. I like that song. But anyway, this was supposed to be a B-side, not to be released. And Elvis Costello, the U.S. record company, said, you got to put it on here. This sounds more like rock and roll, what we were expecting from Elvis Costello and the attractions, you know, partially based on that last record that came out. They're more, more comfortable with this. And it ended up being one of his most well-known songs. And I think he would probably say today he, he continues to play it. It's a great song. So what's, this, what's this story? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tom. I feel like I'm... No, I mean, I made my comment. It's a great song. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk more about it, but like, yeah, I got that out there. Well, so the the Nick Lowe connection, like, so he's the producer of the album. Did he release this as a single prior? Because I, yeah. I... In his I've, band, Brinsley Schwartz. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is a band, not a person, and a <laughs> terrible name. Terrible name for it's a like band. A Jethro Tull sounds like a person, but is Jethro Tull is a, at least sounds like a cool person's name. Brinsley Schwartz does not <laughs> a sound cool like a person. cool person's name. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, I never even realized this was a cover until I guess you can call it a cover if he released it. Um, and apparently, it was his idea, Elvis's idea, to to record this. But I went back and listened to the Nick Lowe version, and I, this might be one of those like Watchtower Hendrix type deals where I mean, this Elvis Costello's is a vastly superior version, and to me, like that's the song. It's it's not a favorite of mine, I gotta say, and part part of it's because of the vocal affect that Costello puts on, where he's really going out of his way to make sure you know it's sarcastic. I think that he's making fun of hippies or it's tongue in cheek about peace, love, and understanding a little bit. But I will say, upon re-listening, it's got a great understated drum beat. Yeah. I mean, my note on this is just like, you know, P. Thomas is a fantastic drummer. Bruce Thomas is a killer on the bass. Like, again, <laughs> that's why I talked about, like, they save some of the more ho-hum arrangements and some of the more ho-hum songs on the album, I think, are just absolutely saved by the bass and drums. The rhythm section just kills it but you know alan to your point the brinsley schwartz version of this song is this is actually a pretty straightforward version uh like cover of that version of it so i think the nick Lowe one is kind of just like him on an acoustic guitar that you're listening to right like it sounds demo-y almost yeah yeah this the brinsley schwartz one is more filled out and it, this is a pretty straightforward cover to that but oh, definitely okay. better well oh, certainly better yes <laughs> yeah. absolutely better this came off to me like it was recorded 20 years after the original album and then like thrown on. It just totally doesn't fit the vibe of the album. I actually, I'm not a huge fan of this song. Rob, you talked about the vocal stuff. It sounds like Costello doing an impression of Springsteen, who's also doing an impression of Costello. <laughs> it just, it just doesn't, just doesn't do it for me. And it feels tacked on. The style, everything about it, it feels very, like somebody said, and again, maybe somebody said we need a hit or you just need something that's going to appeal to like American senses. Here, do this kind of stock song. So well, I, I I wasn't a huge fan. No, to your point, it, it really, I agree. It doesn't fit directly with the rest of the material because it wasn't recorded in the same session. I'm not 100% sure when, how far after it was recorded, but 
And Elvis Costello did not conceive of this. You know, uh, we, we should have mentioned, right, The this, again, it was a concept album. Elvis Costello initially wanted to call the album Emotional Fascism. The record company talked him into something a little more subtle, Armed Forces. It's a bit on the nose. <laughs> it's a bit on the nose, right? And so this got tacked on. This wasn't in the original release. So in Elvis Costello's mind, for all intents and purposes, it's not on the record. But here we are talking about it because everyone in America got it. And, sure. and because it's become a fairly iconic song. And a fairly iconic song of his that I have to say I don't love. So that's I wanted to be a little bit even-handed about complaining about some of this material. That's why I wanted to talk about it. So I actually like his vocal delivery on this. I, I don't know. It, it is different. It certainly is. Uh, I feel like it's appropriate for the song. I, I feel like if it was his other, some of his other vocal deliver choices for this song it would have it wouldn't have worked as well so i like this song i think it's i think it's a good song um i will i will be the lone vote on that one because i'm guessing you don't like the song too much either alan no i actually do like it and and um i do agree that it's it's seems like a little bit of a fish out of water with the rest of the album you know it 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 does feel like bolt-on because it probably was but I, I do like it. it, I, it and I'm not like generally a fan of these like folky kind of, you know, hippie songs, but which I know is I just <laughs> included like 20,000 songs in that categorization. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I, I think it was a good song. I liked it. So here's another reason why this song sounds different than all the other songs on the album. Uh, and it's odd due to the vocal content. What's the line where he's like, so where are the strong and who is the trust and who are the trusted and where's the harmony? Sweet harmony. There's no vocal harmony on this song. Oh, I think it might be the sin. only a- song on the album with no vocal <laughs> harmony, though. But I, like, that's why I, I think it separates it a good you. amount because everything else has a lot of vocal <laughs> harmony. It's actually pretty lush and good. Good point. Yeah. Great. Well, those are, that is the album. And but before we go on, I do just want to put a plug in for one more song. I was conflicted about which songs to talk about. One of my favorite songs as a song on this record is Green Shirt. But the problem is that the version of it I really like and first discovered was a demo version of just Elvis Costello on an acoustic guitar. And I ended up really liking that one a lot better. So this is just a plug to go listen, go find that version of Green Shirt if you that care to. That version is so vastly superior to the produced version of it. Like so superior. It's like almost a different song. Really dig the song. And I'll just I'll just throw something out there also for the listeners, too. Uh, as researching this, I decided to put together a little Elvis Costello primer playlist if you're interested in maybe perusing his catalog. Not perusing it, actually, but going through it glancingly since it's been 45 years and you want to listen to a few songs. I'll put that in the show notes as well if you care to listen across albums as well. And I'll make sure that green shirt acoustic version is on that particular playlist. But now comes the most exciting moment of the podcast, boys. Will Elvis Costello's Armed Forces, sorry, Elvis Costello and the Attractions Armed Forces, is it a must hear before you die? I will kick it to Tom first. Yeah, I was a little conflicted going into this. And again, mostly just because, as I said, it's like my third favorite Elvis Costello album. And it seems excessive to say that three albums are must hear before you die from one artist. But uh, I, I think that it definitely belongs in the list mostly because of the message. The music's great. I think the the production is great. The music's great. The message is what maybe steps it up to that. Like most bands that have great produced and well constructed albums, but it's their third best album. In my opinion, I probably would say that you didn't make the cutoff this one because of the message. I think it goes on the list. 
should have mentioned earlier as well that Elvis Costello has six albums on the 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die list, which I believe is the largest for a single person. I noticed the Beatles have seven albums on the list. Springsteen has five. So kind of put that in your pipe and smoke it. I don't know if those are all appropriate. In fact, I don't even know all these records that well. But and the, and the first two records that you're talking about, Tom, are also on the list, I can see. So just just a note that the that Robert Diamond definitely appreciates Elvis Costello, broadly speaking. Well, maybe we Let's should knock him back down a peg and I'll just vote no. <laughs> so he's humbled by this experience. Finally humbled. I was going to say if there's six on the app, maybe I should just say no just to, so we don't have another slam dunk across all four. In all seriousness, yes, I think you should listen to it. This is my first full album of exposure to Elvis Costello, and this uh, has turned into a gateway drug for Elvis Costello for me. So just by that very fact that I am now going to go explore some of these other albums, I think you should listen to this. Awesome. Alan? Uh, yeah, I'll agree with that. You know, nothing more I think that needs to be said. It's it's a, it's a great album, even if, you know, I know we sometimes go back and forth on this idea of how many, you know, if somebody only has one, so you vote that in, so you hear that artist. But either way, it's a great album. I, it's not my favorite of his. Like, I think uh, the, his his previous album to that, um, Next Year's Model, is probably my my favorite of his albums. But uh, yeah, I definitely think it it's worth a listen. Yeah, of course I agree. I think this is a must listen. And although I also love those other records that you guys are talking about, but what's really great about him, as we mentioned, is they they really provide something different. They hit a different spot musically and even to a certain extent lyrically. He's always kind of a snarling, angry uh, personality on there. But for me, this one is important because of all the really interesting production choices and arrangement choices they make because of the song craft. But most importantly, because it is truly an album with a capital A, it's conceived and it's conceptually consistent. And thus, I I think it's a really important part of the catalog. And I'm also aware of the fact that a lot of people haven't heard it. So it feels like an unsung part of the canon to me. Well, that's it, Mr. Costello. You're in, baby. Good job. All that remains now, boys, is to uh, talk about what we're going to be doing next week. Tommy. Awesome. Yeah, I am excited. I am sure that, uh, you know, noted appreciator of music criticism, Elvis Costello, will really find value in what we're doing here and uh, (laughs) appreciate it. Um, But uh, yeah, we are going to get out the Albinator 5000, get that bad mamma jamma rolling, and find out what we are going to be listening to next week. So, drum roll please, we will be listening to... All right, I'm already in love with this just based upon the title. We have Go on. Loretta Lynn's Don't Come Home a Drinking with Lovin' on Your Mind. Is that the entire title? Parenthetical with Lovin' on Your Mind. Don't Come Home oh, a Drinking. Well, so there are so we got, presuming this someone's drinking in the car on the way home or is the drinking is in progress. This is a metal album. <laughs> I think this is He's a metal walking album. through the door chugging. Right. <laughs> it's like you can you can have drink as much as you want, but don't come home yeah. a drinking. Come home. Yeah. A drink. And, well, and if you're going to, you can't walk in and be like, "All right, baby, let's fuck." Like, let's go. Like, <laughs> so this oh, I, again, I'm be. already in love. Though I know, yeah, I vote yes. Two Loretta Lynn songs. Um, 
one of which is You're the Reason Our Kids Are Ugly, which is another one of those, like, maybe title first songwriting, and I absolutely love it. <laughs> Great. I don't know any Loretta Lynn, really, so I'm excited to dive in. All right. Well, great. It's been another thrilling conversation and exciting episode with y'all. If anyone wants to write in, we have an email address here for you. 1001 album complaints at Gmail. That's 1001. The number album complaints at Gmail. Tell us all your thoughts and feelings about neo-fascism or whatever else might be on your mind. Actually, don't don't do any of that. Yeah, that's that's a little a little much. We don't, we don't want to hear it. That's going <laughs> to automatically go to spam. Okay, and that is all for this week's episode. So for 1001 Album Complaints, I've been Rob. Alan. I'm Adam. I've been Tom. Uh, boosh. Boosh. <laughs> <laughs>